chapter 21. I'll be reading Acts chapter 21, verses 15 through 26. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, He related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that You teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We we have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, historical words to our minds, to our understanding, to our hearts. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may we see, even as you had had Paul say, follow me as I follow the Lord. May we follow Paul in what we see of his deep devotion to you and love and care for others. That he would not make use of his freedom, but he would set it aside for the sake of of preaching the gospel. May we, Father, by your Spirit, see it in our own lives and be sanctified further in our walk with you in such loving ways. So to that end, help us see this text in its context to the glory of Christ. Amen. The Apostle Paul lived 
to please God. So much so, as we have seen now in our journey through the book of Acts, he knows what's in front of him. He's been warned, and he says, I'm going to Jerusalem anyway. I'm willing to suffer, and I'm willing to even be killed for Christ for the sake of getting to Jerusalem and being clear with the gospel. Paul knew he had many enemies in Jerusalem, unbelieving Jews, and many enemies within the church in Jerusalem. He knew evangelism was very dangerous, but he lived. He lived with a passion to please the Lord Jesus. And therefore, Paul, throughout his ministry and what we see here, he was always willing to fight. Not against flesh and blood, but with words, with arguments, with scripture, with truth. He was always willing to fight for the truth of the gospel. And so should we. So are you willing to give your all for the truth of the gospel in 2020? Are you willing to risk your reputation in our culture for standing for the truth of the gospel? Are you willing to risk reputation, slander, for a theological stance? Oh, and like Paul, because this is what it's about with him, a theological stance, he was willing to go to the very people who hated his guts because of it and see what God might do. In our day, are you willing to stand for the truth that the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, is the creator of the universe? Which therefore means... Every single human soul will be judged one day with perfect justice, which means future condemnation for all persons, for some of your friends, family members, nice neighbors, for everyone who has not been converted. To Jesus Christ. Are you willing to hold to the truth of the gospel? That there is only one way to be delivered from guilt and into God's good graces. And that is through faith in Jesus' work on the cross alone. Are you willing to hold to the truth of scripture on central issues? Like God created humanity as two distinct, equal, but distinct sexes, male and female. That human sexual activity that is beautiful and non-sinful, and human sexual activity that is sinful is defined in the Bible and not 
in the culture? Are you willing to remain faithful to God? Even if it means you lose your job. Or friends. Or family. What we see before us this morning is that Paul was willing to go to the lion's den of Jerusalem. He was famous. Well, he's well known. He's really, he was infamous in Jerusalem. Within the church, much less with the unbelieving Jews. He was willing to go. And he was hated because of his teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it related to the Mosaic law. So, if you're there in chapter 21, you remember in this journey towards Jerusalem, Paul and his gang finally arrive right before Passover, as therefore the city now is swelling to almost two million people. Now get the picture. Remember where Acts starts after the resurrection, 40 days later, the day of Pentecost. This is almost now, almost 30 years later. His traveling companions are mainly a bunch of non-Jews, Gentile Christians from, 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 from Antioch and from Ephesus and from Berea and Thessalonica and Athens and, and Corinth, and including Luke, the Gentile physician who wrote this for us. And so they get there. They already have a place to sleep and stay. And many of the Jews that they met evidently that first day were very happy to see them and welcome these non-Jewish Christians, these Gentile Christians. And then they arranged a private meeting with the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. One of the main heads of the church for decades there was James, Jesus' half-brother, another child of the Virgin Mary. And, and all the elders are present. Look at verses 17 and 18. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And then Paul spoke for a long time telling stories about what happened in, in Lystra and what happened in Berea and Philippi and, and in Corinth and about that, that riot in Ephesus that was caused by the social impact of the gospel in that city. And then Luke tells us, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And then these words. And when they, when James, when these 20 or 50 elders and Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, when they heard it, they glorified God. They loved it. They knew the gospel saves not just Jews, but it saves non-Jews. And those non-Jews, those Gentiles, are saved by faith in Christ 
apart from them ever having to go through Jewish ceremonial law-keeping. They had no problem with that. But James and the other leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they do have their own particular problem in their own context with the Jewish church in the Jewish homeland. The temple is right down the street. And so they say to Paul now, start with verse 20. Paul, you can see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. In other words, these are Christians. They believe in the gospel, in Jesus, his death, his resurrection. They've come into the church. You know how many thousands there are of Christian Jews here. They are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you, Paul. About how in all the diaspora, in all these Roman cities, there was always the Jewish enclaves in each, and Paul would go to them first preaching the gospel. They've been told that throughout the diaspora, in all of those cities, you tell those Jews who come to faith in Jesus that now you must stop practicing Jewish cultural and ceremonial law-keeping, our customs. That's what they're told, Paul. You tell them to stop eating kosher diets. You tell them to stop circumcising your children. You tell them to stop their whole culture that they were born and raised in and all they know. They're told that's what you are doing. And so Paul, look at verse 22. What is to be done? Oh, they already concocted a plan. Because, because all these Christian Jews are going to hear that you've come here to Jerusalem. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men, Christian Jewish men, who are under a vow. Take these men, meaning over to the temple, purify yourself along with them, and you pay their temple expenses so that they may shave their heads. And thus all will know, Paul, that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So Paul, will you do this? Okay, just pause it. <laughs> the DVR. James is asked the question. Paul's standing in that large conference room. What is he going to do? Remember, this is the Paul who wrote these words about ten years earlier. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now it is evident that no one is justified, meaning saved or made right before God. No one is justified before God by the law. 
for the righteous person shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. And he goes on and he said, okay, then why the law? Why did God give the law? Answer, it was added because of sins. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, Jesus, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, before faith came, that is, before the gospel, Christ worked, before faith in Christ came, we Jews were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith in Christ would be revealed. And so then the law, in other words, acted as our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith in Christ. But now that faith, the gospel, faith in Jesus, the Christ, has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That is the law. For in Christ Jesus, even you Gentiles, you all are sons of God through faith in Christ. This is the Paul who's standing in that room and has been asked to go to the temple, go through Jewish, Mosaic, purifying acts. Dig deep into your own pocket and it's not cheap. Pay their expenses for their Nazarite vow and sacrifices. This is the same Paul who more than a decade earlier confronted the Apostle Peter publicly in the city of Antioch, 500 miles away from Jerusalem, mainly a Gentile city, confronted Peter because when Peter was up there for months on end, he was acting just like a Gentile. He was not eating kosher. He was taking invitations from fellow Christians who were non-Jews and eating in their homes, lobster tail and BLTs and baby back ribs, and he had no problem with it, and he was right. But something happened. All of a sudden, a group of Christian men from the Jerusalem church came into town in Antioch, and Peter feared them. And he feared the ramifications back home if they find out he's eating in Gentile homes of professing believers. And so he slowly and politely started to decline their invitations and is going weeks on end. And Paul must have been out of town and he comes back in and after two, he starts to realize what's happening. And the Gentile Christians who love Jesus are starting to feel this huge separation. So let me just go to how Paul addresses it. Here's the way he tells the story from Galatians 2. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And he explains what happened. For before certain men came from James, in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, from James, Jesus' brother, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when those men came, Peter began to 
draw back and he separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, the Christian Jews in Antioch, acted hypocritically with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But I, Paul, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before everybody. Now you got to hear, here's Paul's speech to him, Peter. If you, Peter, though you're a Jew, which you are, he is born and raised a Jew. We all have cultures. Okay? All right, this is his culture. It was Jesus' culture. It was Paul's culture. They're Jews, which, which incorporate religiosity and temple and food regulations and washings. That was how we were raised. You and I, Peter, if you, being a Jew, live like a Gentile, which he, in other words, was living like a Gentile, he laid aside all those Jewish separating, cocooning, cultural laws while he's up there in Antioch. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, then how is it now that you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter wasn't preaching this. By for, what he means is this. Once they, the Gentile Christians started to feel those Jewish brothers and sisters are not having meals with us anymore. Is there something better about them? Or maybe we should start not eating the pig anymore. Or shellfish. And there's that pressure and, and this is going to mess with their consciences. And that's why it's such an important issue for Paul. He says to them, Peter... You and I both as Jews, we know that a person is not justified or saved by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also, we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, by keeping kosher diet, circumcising your boys on the eighth day, no one will be justified because of that. This is the Paul. As we're going to hit play again, what is he going to do? He tells us what he does. He takes these four Jewish Christian men into the temple and he pays their fees and he goes through his own Jewish purification process according to the law of Moses and he declares in the future a couple weeks from now how it's going to work he declares the day on which the sacrifices for the men will happen So what are we supposed to make of that? Let me first tell you that there are, that there are numbers of genuine Christians who love Jesus, 
And Christian scholars who love Jesus, who think that as we look at this passage, Paul blew it. They say that Paul caved into fear. And thus he sinned when he agreed with James and the elders to go do this particular task. They say he made a big boo-boo. They say what Paul did was in contradiction to the gospel that he always preached. I don't agree with them. I, I, I just, I, I, I just not, I don't think that's the correct reading of this passage. Yes, Paul's a sinner. Just like all of us who are being saved in Jesus, Paul also is battling sin, needs forgiveness, etc. But this act of accommodation in the context of the Jewish church in Jerusalem was not sin. Nor was it against the gospel that Paul clearly preached. Now, Brief little parenthesis. If Paul went through the purification rite, paid the expenses of these fellow Jews, and he did it because he thought that by so doing, he's deserving of salvation in Jesus, then he would have turned the gospel upside down and on its head. And as he called those who do believe that in the first century, he said, it's no gospel at all. They have destroyed the core of the gospel. That's not what Paul's doing. Now, I'd love to sit here for two and a half hours and say what I just said, but we only have a few minutes. So I'm going to give to you four major Points to set out. Let's go back in time. It's the late 50s of the first century in Jerusalem. The temple is still standing, still in operation. Here's Paul. Let's set the context. First, number one is this the gospel that Paul preaches, you get through his epistles, preaches in the Gentile missions, preaches it to the Jews out there in the diaspora. The gospel that Paul has always preached is in full agreement with the gospel that James, Jesus' brother, understands. It's in full agreement with the Apostle Peter's gospel, the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee's Gospel. They all agree that God saves Jews and He saves non Jews, not based upon any practice of Jewish cultural or ceremonial law keeping laid out in the books of Moses. But God saves Jews and He saves non Jews by grace alone, through Christ alone through their faith in Him alone. That's first. They all agree on that. Secondly, the Jewish leadership, James included, Peter, who's not in town here, the Jewish leadership of the church knew 
that even as a Jew, being raised a Jew, a Jew culturally, that person, when they become a Christian, they can choose to not practice Jewish cultural separating laws. We just saw that in the city of Antioch. Barnabas was doing it. A bunch of Jewish Christians were doing it. Peter was doing it. And there is no sin in their forsaking the cultural separating Jewish laws. Thirdly, Jerusalem, Judea, this is the homeland of the Jews. I mean, almost everyone there is a Jew. I mean, you got the Roman Gentiles running around and keeping things straight. But Jerusalem is very Jewish. The temple is right there. Jews from around the empire constantly travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, for yearly festivals. And so the Christian Jews in Jerusalem, in the surrounding countryside, in Judea, all the way up into Galilee, the Christian Jews are also evangelistically minded. And what's their field? Jews. They want to win fellow Jews to Jesus. So therefore, think about it. To come to, if you're a Jew and you come to Jesus and you're living in Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem in one of these villages or towns, I love Jesus now. Look at that. I'm saved. And he's the only Savior for any of us Jews, which is all true. And then you decide, I'm going to go evangelize in Jerusalem, but you bring with you a whole sack of baby back ribs and bacon sandwiches and pork chops, and you eat it in the temple grounds in front of fellow Jews, and you say, let me tell you about your Jewish Messiah. He was from Nazareth. He was crucified on a cross. That would be horrifically unwise. And that's the principle that the Apostle Paul lived by. Here are his words. From 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says it this way. For though I, Paul, I am free from all because of Christ, I have made myself a servant of all in order that I might win more of them to Jesus. Next line. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order that I would win Jews to Jesus. It's strange, isn't it? Paul, I thought you were the Pharisee of Pharisees, which he was. He took pride in his Jewish cultural ceremonial law-keeping, so much so that he hated this new doctrine rising up within Judaism this Jesus sect, that he persecuted it. Now he says, I became a Jew. Why? Because he doesn't identify himself in this, that way as a Jew. He'll be, because he's not bound to it. So he says, though, even though born a Jew, raised a Jew, when I'm around Jews to the Jews, I'll become as a Jew. 
in order to win them to Jesus. To those who are under the law, I became as, as one under the law. And then he says, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. But I did it so that I might win those who are outside this Jewish law. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So to the Jews, I became as a Jew. So that's why Paul said yes to James and the elders. And he went ahead and he, and he paid a lot of money on behalf of these four Jewish Christian brothers who had taken the Nazarite vow found there in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, which means they were dedicating themselves unto God for a period of time, a month maybe, which in that time, in this Nazarite vow as it's laid out, which means they will abstain for that period from alcohol, from certain foods, from dead bodies, and they won't even cut their hair for that period of time. That's where the head shaving and all that comes in. Jerusalem is very Jewish, Paul agrees, to do what they want him to do. Fourth and finally, another very important reality in the church of Jerusalem at that time was that within the church as a whole, how many thousands there were, we don't know, but it's in the thousands, there was a particular theological sect that was in error, that was wrong theologically, dangerously wrong on the gospel. They denied salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And from that group in Jerusalem, for many years now at this point, from that group, men were constantly being sent out into the mission field of the churches that the Apostle Paul had planted. And when Paul's gone, they come in. And they come in and they tell, because the vast majority are Christians who have come to Jesus. I mean, there are, are, are Gentiles who have come to Jesus. And they go in and start threatening those new Gentile Christians. This is great. Jesus is the Savior. But, but if you really want to make it to heaven, if you really want to be saved, you can't remain a Gentile. You must, men, be ceremonially circumcised. You have to change your eating habits and eat according to Leviticus. You need to practice days and months the way that we Jews do. If you do not, you cannot be saved. Their doctrine at its core says to Jew or Gentile, faith in Jesus, you must have it. Yes, he died for sins. Yes, he rose from the dead. But you're saved by faith in Jesus, plus adding and going on as a Jew, or adding, if you're a Gentile, becoming a Jew, adding to your faith Jewish cultural law-keeping. 
These guys, throughout Paul's ministry, were huge enemies of his. It is from that sect that these rumors about Paul, because they always would take Paul and just twist his teaching a little bit, like they were doing. James says, Paul, they've all heard about you. And you tell Jews, you can't eat kosher anymore. He didn't quite say it that way. It was not his position like that. And so when James says, Paul, do you see how many thousands there are of Christian Jews here who are all zealous for the law? Well, part of those thousands is this significant sect within the Jerusalem church. All right, so here's the rub as we, as we close. Paul was willing to suffer. And we'll come to what happens to him here. He was willing to suffer. He was willing to even die in order to confront this error in Jerusalem. He chose to put aside his freedom in Christ. That is his freedom from mosaic, cultural, ceremonial, Jewish law keeping. He was free to not practice it. He chose to set that freedom aside for the sake of having favor with the Jewish Christians first and the non Believing Jews in Jerusalem to evangelize. He chose so that he would get their ears, hopefully, in the weeks and months to come as they would have different meetings with the Apostle Paul in town, teaching over here and over there. And he would teach them more clearly, even fellow Jews who have come to Jesus. We're free. We're free from obligation. To such rituals. And we're free to practice them. If we want. As long as you do not practice them. Ever thinking you're better than non-Jews. As long as you don't practice them. Thinking that by the practice of them. You keep yourself saved. Or anything. Like that. He wanted. The platform. To speak. And he wouldn't have had it if he said to James and the rest of the leadership of the church, no, I'm not going to do that. Jesus is our sacrifice. He's been slaughtered on the cross. Therefore, there's no way I'm taking these guys into the temple. Not going to do it. I'm not going to go to these old covenant priests. He wouldn't have had a platform. But Paul lived with a passion to please his Savior. And thus he lived with a willingness to not use his freedom in Christ as a gratuitous stumbling block in someone's way to faith in Jesus 
or a stumbling block to fellow Christians whose consciences, whose understanding, grasp on deeper things of Christ is not quite there yet. He was sensitively loving toward them. So where we began, are you willing to risk never sacrificing the gospel, truth, Content, particularly as biblical morality is being directly challenged in government and workplaces and schools all over the place. And therefore, if you hold to it, they'll call you a nasty name. Even though, if you're a Christian, you know how to stand for what is sinful, what's not. We're all broken sinners. No one in here who is a Christian deserves to be. And we go out in the world that way. And that we know that heterosexual sex is sinful outside of the covenant of marriage. And we know that homosexual sex is sinful in any context. There's a way to hold to the truth for the sake of the glory of God and the sake of other people who need him and then to love the living daylights out of the person whom you're broken over because they are only same sex attracted to keep the truth on one hand clear and keep your love pure or to say it this way you willing to live your life by not using your freedom in Christ to do X, Y, or Z if you know it will cause another to stumble? Are we free not to use our freedom in Christ, not as an idol of our own selfishness? As the Apostle Paul declared in Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Oh, yeah. Don't ever be enslaved to those who pervert the gospel and say you must add works to your faith in order to be saved. Don't ever go into that slavery, Paul says. You're free. That you're saved was totally had nothing to do with an act you did. But it was all God. Who from the foundation of the world had you in mind and brought you to faith. And it was that faith that said, I see it. I accept it. Period. Issue over forever. That is the means by which you're saved. Don't ever come into slavery. You're free. And then he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only be careful now. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for your sinful nature. But instead, through love, serve one another. Paul was personally free from mosaic law keeping 
on the one hand, there was a sense in which Paul knew he was free to show up to particular houses and meetings throughout the city of Jerusalem eating baby back ribs and bacon sandwiches. There's a sense in which he was free to do that. But it's not the Christian way in that context. It's not the Christian way. The Christian way is sensitivity and love and concern for others' souls and their consciences. For all of us who are genuine believers in Christ, true freedom in Christ means we can set aside our own preferences and desires and needs. True freedom is the freedom from being enslaved to our own natural desires of selfishness. It's laying down our own rights at times, our own desires as a sacrifice on the altar of Christian love. Even though Paul he was free from the law. He made himself a servant of the law in order to love his fellow Christian Jews in Jerusalem to teach them further and his love for the unbelievers whom he wanted to evangelize. And we're called in principle, in differing context, to go and to do likewise is Paul. Let's pray. So Father, I, I ask that you continue to daily as we began this service with Psalm 51, oh, as we walk by the Spirit, we are so aware of our brokenness and sinfulness. And so, Father, make us, oh, empower us to be those who, throughout each day of this coming week, wake up with a deep yearning to be pleasing to you. A deep yearning Lord Jesus, our great King ascended to please you in our marriages and singleness and parenting and honoring a mother and father and workplace and school and in private when no one's looking, to be pleasing to you. Teach us, teach us the joy of this freedom and therefore from that foundation the joy of laying aside freedoms for the sake of others. To the glory of your holy name.